Welcome to the Aggie Parent and Family Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Jones, the Transition Family and Parent Program Coordinator at Utah State University. And today I have with me Emily Fishburn, uh, who is one of the new prevention specialists at USU. And she's been assigned with making sure that people are trained properly to prevent and to respond to sexual misconduct. Uh, Emily received her undergraduate degree, I believe, at Nebraska Wesleyan. That is true. And Indiana University for her master's degree. So, Emily, it's great to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Isaiah. Awesome. Awesome. So, Emily, tell us, uh, what all have you been up to? Tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, kind of what you've been doing prior to landing your current position at USU. Sure. So, like you said, I uh, am originally from Nebraska, and I got my undergraduate degree at Nebraska Wesleyan University. Uh, I was a biology major as an undergrad, thought I was going to be a doctor, and that didn't happen. So, took a little time off between undergrad and grad school. And ended up going back to get a Master of Public Health. And uh, while I was at Indiana University, I emphasized sexual violence prevention and bystander intervention education for that master's. And so that essentially led me on the path to doing this work with college students. Uh, So it's been a lot of fun. I've been at the university since September of last year. So what would that be? 2018. Uh, And so in the past 12, 13-ish months, a lot of the work that I've been doing is just trying to understand what sexual misconduct looks like at Utah State University because every institution, it looks a little bit different. So when we say sexual misconduct, we mean things like gender-based discrimination, sexual harassment, sexual assault, dating or domestic violence, which we call relationship violence and stalking. So it's a pretty broad spectrum of behaviors. And part of my role here at the university is to figure out what are we doing really great related to those issues in terms of preventing them and having really good dialogues about them and what can be we be doing really to change and improve those dialogues and improve the outcomes of students and faculty and staff having those experiences. Uh, so my role isn't just focused on students, I do also focus on faculty and staff and I support students, faculty and staff at all of our USU campus locations as well. So a pretty large, broad job, uh, but it's definitely one that I enjoy and it allows me the chance to really have pretty awesome dialogues with people about these issues and what it would look like to have some culture change on all of our campus locations related to them. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I think for listeners, sometimes it's easy to forget that the students are here with the faculty and so you would be training and responding to both. So awesome. So maybe just tell us a little bit about your work. Uh, I read online that you were in Colorado and that you had worked with middle school and high school students. How would you say that's equipped you for your role today? did a lot of research. (laughs) I like it. Yeah, so that's what I spent my gap year in between undergrad and grad school doing. I served with AmeriCorps, so the National Service Organization. I was placed in the Denver metro area uh, and worked for a federally qualified health center where I did middle and high school sex education. Uh, And so that was really what taught me that I actually enjoy talking about these kinds of topics. I know for a lot of people, they're pretty uncomfortable or they're taboo or they're not things that should we feel like we should be talking about in an educational setting. But what I found with especially middle and high school students is they really wanted to talk about this kind of stuff. They felt like either they couldn't talk to their parents about it or maybe their parents were kind of awkward when they talked to them about it. And they were looking for really like solid information that maybe things like Google or their peers weren't giving them. And so I had the opportunity to come in and really be able to be that person that was educated and answer their questions in a way that was actually accurate and scientifically based and medically accurate and all of those important things that 
they may or may not get from a Google search or from their peers, right? So in terms of translating that into my role now, I think that sometimes I still run into uh, some resistance in audiences when I'm having these conversations, recognizing that I get paid to do this professionally. It's an expectation that I have these conversations every day, but not everyone in our spheres Mm -hmm. uh, has these conversations on a regular basis. Uh, And I think that that's why it's really important to have someone in my role to really be challenging our faculty, staff, and students to have these kinds of dialogues because they're important. And the more that we have them in advance of intimate behaviors or intimate relationships, uh, the easier it is to have them in the context of those kinds of situations. Uh, What we really see is the most preventative work is really being educated about what you want, what your boundaries are, and how to talk about those things with the people in your life. That is awesome. Uh, Science, medicine, accuracy are all good things uh, to distribute. I was kind of wondering, uh, in your time so far at USU, uh, what does the data from students and I guess faculty as well say about what's going on on campus? So we just released the results of our spring 2019 sexual misconduct survey. And so that's definitely something that I encourage listeners to go online and find. It's at our sexualassault.usu.edu webpage. Uh, And what we found is that USU students on the whole don't experience sexual misconduct at rates that match national averages, which is awesome. It's good to see that. There are a lot of what we call protective factors in this space that prevent students from having those kinds of experiences, whether that is culture or religion or the way in which they were raised by their families. Uh, And so that's awesome. That makes my job a little bit easier. But what we did see in this year's report, which we hadn't measured in 2017, the last time that we did this survey with students, was higher rates of sexual harassment and gender-based discrimination than we may be expected to see. Uh, And so for me, that's where I want to start focusing as we move forward is thinking about how are individuals treating each other within our campus community? If we're not really seeing a ton of students experiencing things like sexual assault or dating or domestic violence and stalking, which do happen here, uh, but not as frequently as sexual harassment and gender-based discrimination, what does it really look like to have good dialogues about the fact that the words that we're using, the actions that we're taking the ways in which we're treating each other, even though they might not be uh, violating physical or sexual boundaries, are still making people feel uncomfortable and unwelcome in spaces and making them feel like they are not respected by the people that are in their lives, whether that is a friend or a classmate or maybe even a faculty or a staff member. Uh, We haven't yet really done a lot of surveying of faculty and staff related to these issues. Anecdotally, though, I will hear things when I go out and I do trainings, and it sounds like a lot of the times with faculty and staff when we're seeing things that's also related to gender-based discrimination and sexual harassment too. So for me, as I move forward thinking about what are my priorities as the prevention specialist for these issues, those are going to be the two top focuses uh, as we move forward with our prevention efforts. Yeah, that's great. I think listeners, that's really informative. It kind of segues. um, I've kind of been perusing around online and reading different articles uh, where parents have sort of said how they feel. And one thing that comes up is parents are wondering and family members what to do to support their student safety during their time at USU. So, you know, obviously it's preventative. And so Mm -hmm. just thinking, okay, how do how can they go about um, increasing their support? 
I think one of the biggest ways that parents can be more supportive of students during their time at the university, especially if they are a student that has moved on to campus so they're living away from home, is still being willing to engage in dialogues about really important things like an individual's health and safety. What are the choices that they're making around maybe like drug or alcohol use or around sexual intimacy and other intimate behaviors with individuals? How is their mental health doing? You know, is it time to suggest that someone seek uh, counseling or advocacy or is it time to encourage an individual to seek tutoring because maybe their courses are more challenging than they thought that they were going to be? When we think about prevention as a whole, even though I'm tasked with sexual misconduct specifically, if we are also preventing other kinds of behaviors holistically, we also end up preventing sexual misconduct because we know that sexual misconduct is influenced by a lot of other decisions that students can make during their time at the university. And so my biggest recommendation is being willing to have those conversations, even though they're challenging, even though they're hard, even though they're likely going to make some of your students uncomfortable and maybe squirm and be like, no, mom or dad or grandma or whoever it is, like, I don't want to have this conversation with you. Uh, but I think it's important to to acknowledge that parents can still be a really important ally and resource for students when they're at college, uh, even though they are now in an increased setting where they have more responsibility for their choices and their actions. And so it's a balance of being there for your student, but also recognizing that they have the right and autonomy to make their own choices and be responsible for the outcomes of their choices. So how can you help them think critically through, if I make XYZ choice, what could come of it or what could happen of it? I think on the flip side too, it's also important for us to recognize that we need to have tough dialogues with students when we hear that they're engaging in behaviors that might be harmful to other people. And those can be really hard conversations to have as well, recognizing that it's possible that a student might be the person that is causing other students to feel unsafe or or harmed. And what does it really look like to have that challenging dialogue with your student too? And I think that as a parent, that can be one of the most difficult dialogues to have, but it's an important one. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I know I met a lot of the parents at Parent and Family Weekend, and they were big sports fans. And a lot of this, there's an analogy to this where, you know, the team doesn't just sort of show up and see what happens. There's a prior conversation that goes on. And so that when they when they enter into a game like situation, they're a little bit they flop through some of the scenarios. If this person goes to the left, which way are you going to go? And I think it's helpful for parents also to think of it like that preventative task, as you alluded to, that just opening up a conversation can help facilitate when you're in moments um, that are like this. So another question that comes up is, are there any workshops uh, that you would encourage parents, families, or students to attend to learn more about sexual violent prevention or prevention in general at USU? So as far as students go, obviously they're a little bit easier for us to reach since they are here and present. Uh, We offer a ton of different kinds of workshops, not only through the Office of Equity, which is where I'm located at the university, but also our Sexual Assault and Anti-Violence Information, or SAVVY office, also provides workshops. So we have workshops available on a wide spectrum of conversations, whether it's just more information about university policies and expectations to consent to healthy relationships, to what it looks like to date online safely. So for our students who are using dating apps or dating websites in order to find partners, what does it look like to actually be, again, like critical consumers of that kind of way of meeting people and to do it safely and effectively? We also provide a lot of workshops related to bystander intervention. So this idea that when you see something, you say something or you do something, you step in at the university 
university, we call that the upstanding presentation. Uh, and basically, it's a challenge to everyone that's a part of the university community to do something when they see problematic situations going on. And so we provide a lot of those workshops as well. But we also, especially with our faculty and staff, we spend a lot of time talking to them about boundary setting and effective workplace relationships. And so we have the ability to offer those to students as well. I mean, really virtually, when I think about prevention related to this issue, the best kind of prevention is the positive kind of prevention. It's those conversations about respect and bodily autonomy uh, and allowing people to set boundaries and being respectful of boundaries. That's what's really going to create culture change related to sexual misconduct, even though it's also important for people to know about policies and procedures and expectations and, and what could happen if they are found responsible for violating a policy. As far as parents and families go, one of the biggest recommendations that I have is to get familiar with the sexual violence prevention and domestic and dating abuse prevention resources in your communities as well, recognizing that not all of you are from Utah, not all of you are from the Logan area, uh, because your local domestic violence and sexual assault agencies have a lot of really great resources and workshops that are often open to community members that can attend to learn more, or they'll post those on their websites. They have webinars, they have trainings, they have side decks. There's so much that you can do to learn yourself. Uh, And there are programs out there that can teach parents and families how to have good dialogues about these kinds of conversations. I think, Isaiah, to your point about like being prepared for the game, that's one of the biggest reasons why we try to have dialogues with students early, recognizing that they don't always have the skill set when they're in the moment. But if we can get them to practice it years in advance, months in advance, whatever it might be, even in a situation that doesn't feel super realistic to them, it at least gives them a toolbox, essentially. I remember that one time we had that conversation about how to talk about refusal skills with somebody. This is the first time that I find myself in that kind of situation. What was it that they said? And it allows them to create some of those memory processes, that muscle memory, essentially, to say, oh, yeah, this is what they said that I could do in this particular moment. And it gives them an opportunity to practice that in a safe environment where if they make a mistake, there's really not much consequence to making a mistake in that space. And I think parents and families can be a really important part of that learning process in terms of how do you help your student make a mistake in a conversation with you versus make a mistake in a situation where maybe it would matter and have more consequences behind it. Yeah, that is amazing and solid advice. It really reminds me when we do student and parent orientation, you know, we kind of split them off into two groups and they're kind of, they're talking to two different sets of people. But at the end of the day, the idea is that perhaps they can engage in conversation having both received information and a facilitated dialogue about how to approach talking about some of these tough, tough issues. Um, So what can a parent or family member do to support uh, anti-sexual violence measures, not just to the campus community, but uh, also their local areas of residency too? You had kind of alluded to that earlier. Mm -hmm. Get involved in your communities, um, see what's there. I know sometimes um, I've met parents where they they say the town they're from, and I'm like, well, how many people live there? Maybe Mm -hmm. two in Wyoming or something. Right. So what what do you recommend? I'm sure there's online resources as well, mm-hmm. but what would you recommend? I think the biggest recommendation that I have is figuring out how this can resonate with you, recognizing that unfortunately sexual misconduct across the board impacts almost everybody in some way. Maybe not directly they themselves have had an experience, but the odds are that they have a loved one or a coworker or a family friend or whoever it might be that has had one of these experiences and or is actively having 
having one of these experiences. And so empathy building, I think, is a really important part of the process. What would it look like to be actually supportive of someone who comes forward and tells you that they've had one of these experiences? What could you do in those particular moments? And I think for parents and family members, it's important to recognize that you are often one of the resources that students go to if they have one of these experiences. And so it's important for you to be educated about university services, such as the Sexual Assault and Anti-Violence Information Office, like Counseling and Psychological Services, like our office, like the Office of Equity and our Title IX coordinator, who is a designated individual at the university who is responsible for responding to issues related to sexual misconduct. Uh, And it's important to be aware of local resources as well, recognizing that sometimes students are not going to want to seek support from the university, but they need support from a local community shelter or agency or advocate or therapist or whoever that might be. As far as getting involved in the anti or the prevention realm, I think that there's a lot that you can do in various spaces, whether it's challenging maybe like your church community or maybe like an athletic community if you're involved in that, to actually be having these dialogues, to be bringing in speakers and educators related to these issues. What does it look like for us to create a world where even though it's hard to talk about this stuff, we actually are willing to talk about it because talking about it is what's going to prevent it. The more often that we are not part of the dialogue, the easier it is for these behaviors to continue and to be acceptable within our society. And that's what we see a lot, especially with behaviors related to sexual harassment, is our culture as a whole is still coming to reckon with the fact that those behaviors are problematic, even though they've been problematic for a very long time. But now we're finally starting to recognize them as being just as problematic as things like sexual assault or dating and domestic violence. And so what does it really look like to to be part of that process uh, in your spaces where you have some influence? The last thing that I would encourage parents and family members to do as far as prevention efforts is really thinking about where are those moments where you can step in and say something when you notice these kinds of behaviors going on. And even if maybe you aren't in charge of that individual, you can't do corrective action, even just talking about your dissent with that attitude or that behavior or those words or whatever it might be communicates to the other people in that space that one, you're a safe person to have these kinds of conversations with, and two, you are someone that actually cares about the impact of those behaviors in that space and on the people that are in that space. That's awesome and very practical advice too. I know sometimes when these conversations come up in the media platforms, they seem so big. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I didn't have to get to that level. Right. And I really love the idea of like starting off small and catching things earlier, even identifying words or concepts that seem either unfamiliar or maybe you need more clarity. And it's so nice to be able to chat with them when they're much smaller Yes. Uh, than on these grand levels. Yeah. And that's always our hope when it comes to prevention. We want to be able to intervene early. We want to be able to say, hey, that's problematic language use and walk through that with somebody. Because what we know is that there's a large connection between problematic language use and problematic behaviors later on. And if you're able to intervene early, you can prevent some of that escalation of behavior over time. Yeah, that is awesome. So it's that part of the podcast where we bring up a frequently asked question or a type of question that parents typically ask here at the orientation office. And the question is this, my student is a first generation student and I am concerned about their safety. What can I do to be assured that they will be okay? 
Yeah, so that's a totally understandable question, especially since this is the first time that an individual in your community has gone away to college, is pursuing a higher education degree, and so you're likely not going to be as familiar with university safety and support resources. And so I think some of the biggest recommendations that I have related to that is to do your own homework, figure out who are the people that are responsible at the university for your student's safety, and that includes individuals, at least in the university community, related to student affairs, orientation services, even to a certain extent, uh, the Office of Equity as far as harassment and discrimination goes, um, and the Office of Student Conduct, which is within the Division of Student Affairs, police and campus safety. Uh, But then, you know, we can also make an argument that most employees at the university in some capacity are responsible for student safety as well. And so I think it's recognizing who are those points of contact that your student or you could reach out to if you have concerns about safety. Uh, At USU, you have the opportunity to sign up for code blue alerts and using the safe Utah app and all of those kinds of things. Uh, And so I think it really is doing whatever it would take for you to feel like you trust that your student is being taken care of doing your homework, doing your own research and having conversations with your students too about your concerns and what does the university do for this or what do they not do for this? Can we maybe have a dialogue about that? Can we figure out maybe someone that we need to share that feedback with or whatever it might be? Uh, I think that that's also an important part of the process too is recognizing that as a parent, you have the ability to be an advocate for your student, uh, even though they are at college, uh, and recognizing that there are people that are willing to take in your advice and your feedback and figure out ways to to incorporate it into the university's broader safety and education efforts. That is amazing. Well, thank you so much, uh, Emily, for visiting. I'm glad I now know how to say your name. Yes. And we'll put all of this into the show notes as the central places that everyone can look up all of this information. You can always visit usu.edu slash parents and find Emily as well. Uh, And thank you for listening to the Aggie Parent and Family Podcast.